This is a Scream Queen production. These violent delights have violent ends. Violent ends. Violent ends. Greetings, Earthlings. I'm Jen Carpenter, and this is Violent Ends. Happy Women's History Month. We've been celebrating all month long at Dead Time Stories, but I thought we should celebrate here too. So today, we're going to talk about some Michigan madams who weren't afraid to rock the boat. They sacrificed, struggled, spoke out, and made waves in fields historically dominated by men, and for that, sometimes paid with their lives. Stories on all of today's featured women can be found in the book Wild Women of Michigan by Norma Lewis who, as you might have guessed, is from Michigan. And yes, I do carry the book of Dead Time Stories, so come get a copy if you don't already have one. Before we do get into today's episode, I do need to thank our sponsor. There's no one-size-fits-all solution when it comes to hair care, and that's because your hair and your hair goals are completely unique. I've always struggled with dry, damaged, frizzy hair, which is why it's usually just like up in a ponytail. But thanks to my personalized pros routine, I can honestly say I have never been more in love with my hair. Pros makes custom hair care that's effective because it's personal. Using natural ingredients with proven results, pros customizes every product in your routine from shampoo to supplements. First, Pro starts by asking about my hair goals, like, you know, damage repair, decreasing shedding, increasing volume. They want to know what I want out of my hair. Their in-depth consultation also asks about you as a person. Pros ask me some really unexpected things, kind of like, um, you know, my exercise routine, my eating habits, where I live, because they're taking all of these factors, my health, my environment, my water quality, into account when deciding on the best plan for me. Next, Pros analyzed all my answers and handpicked clean ingredients to help me reach my hair goals. I'm a pretty simple girl. I don't like to use a ton of product, so I've just been doing the pre-shampoo mask and then the shampoo and conditioner, and my hair is so soft. It feels thicker. It's definitely starting to look a lot better in its natural state without me having to like straighten or curl it every single day. As a carbon-neutral certified B Corp, Pros is an industry leader in clean and responsible beauty. All of their ingredients are sustainably sourced, ethically gathered, and cruelty-free. They're also the first custom beauty brand to go carbon-neutral. If you're not 100% positive Pros is the best hair care you've had, they will take the products back, no questions asked. Pros is the key to achieving all of your hair goals this year. Take your free in-depth hair consultation and get 15% off your first order today. Go to pros.com slash violent. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash violent for your free in-depth hair consultation and 15% off. All right, buckle up, buttercups. It's time for a wild ride. Ask a room full of people who the first female aviator in American history was, and 75% of them will say Amelia Earhart. Is she the most famous? Sure. But she wasn't the first. That distinction goes to Michigan native Harriet Quimby, who got her pilot's license almost a full decade before Amelia Earhart ever even stepped foot on an airplane. 
Harriet was born May 11th, 1875 to a poor farming family in Arcadia Township, Michigan. Now, there are two Arcadia Townships in Michigan. One is in Lapeer County. So if you're looking at your hand as a map of Michigan, Lapeer County is in the thumb. The Arcadia Township we're talking about is way up north, complete other side of the state, like at at the tippy top of your pinky finger, if you will. Arcadia Township is located on Lake Michigan, like right on Lake Michigan, north of the Huron-Manistee National Forests, and it is a tiny, tiny town even today with a population of like 600, less than 650, I think right now. So back in the 1800s, there were probably like 10 people there, and most of them were Quimby's (laughs) because this is where Dr. William Quimby and his family settled and attempted to make a go of life as farmers. New York natives William and Ursula Quimby married in 1859 in Branch County, Michigan, when they were both 25 years old. Branch County is down at the very bottom center of the state, right on the Ohio state line. So kind of like the middle of your your inner wrist bone, where you spritz your, your perfume, if you will. Now, about half of the articles that I read said that Harriet Quimby was from Coldwater, which is in Branch County right on that state line, Um, but that is not true. That's fake news. Um, Her parents were married there, and her oldest sibling was possibly born there, but the Quimby's headed north pretty quickly. In 1874, they purchased a plot of land in Arcadia Township, and they started a farm. The following year, in 1875, Harriet was born. Harriet was the youngest of five children. She had three older sisters, and then she had one brother who died at the age of four about eight years before she was born, so she never got to meet him. There was a 14-year age difference between Harriet and her eldest sibling, so she was definitely the baby of the family. Around 1888, when she was just kind of hitting those formative teen years, the Quimby's headed west after their farm failed and left them nearly bankrupt. They landed in Arroyo Grande, California, a small coastal farming town. And again, they got into farming, but again, it did not go very well for them. About 1900, the family moved to San Francisco where Harriet dabbled in acting before landing a job at the San Francisco Chronicle. In true baby-of-the-family fashion, Harriet's mother believed her youngest daughter could do no wrong and could accomplish anything she set her pretty little mind to. And so Harriet believed it too. Beautiful, poised, and wise beyond her years, those who met Harriet in her 20s assumed that she just came from money, that her family was well-to-do, that she'd been educated at private schools in the United States and in France for some reason. I don't know. Maybe she spoke French really fluently, but people thought she she learned everything she knew in France instead of here in Michigan. And Harriet wasn't correcting anyone or offering up that she was really just a poor Michigan farm girl. She intentionally kept her background a mystery. Bucking the convention of her time, Harriet had no interest in finding a husband and settling down with children. She wanted to explore the world, and that's what she did. She quickly gained a reputation as a trailblazer. She was often seen zipping around town in this cute little yellow car she had at a time when automobiles still weren't super common, and they certainly weren't driven by women very often. She was also the first journalist anywhere to use a typewriter to write out her stories. 
1903, when she was 28, Harriet moved to New York City and began working as a photojournalist and writer for Leslie's Illustrated Weekly. Imagine, in 1903, a beautiful young woman just driving around in her little yellow car, typing away on her typewriter, working in fields that were traditionally dominated by men with no interest in settling down. The scandal. What must her mother think? No, her mother was really proud of her. In October of 1910, Harriet's life was forever changed when she attended the International Aviation Tournament at New York's Belmont Park and fell in love with the idea of flying. She asked the winner of the tournament, John Moissant, to teach her to fly. Lucky for her, John owned a flight school, so she began taking lessons in April of 1911 And four months later, on August 2nd, 1911, she took her pilot's test and passed, making her the first licensed female pilot in the United States, and only the second licensed female pilot in the whole world. Our little Harriet. We're so proud of her. Even though she was embarrassed to be a Michigander, we still love her anyway. So, it's 1911, and Michigan's own Harriet Quimby is the country's first aviatrix. I didn't make up that word. I wish I did. They really called her an aviatrix and I love that word so much. Like you guys know that I'm I'm a nervous flyer. I didn't fly at all. Well, once as a baby, doesn't count, couldn't remember it, couldn't consent. Um, but I didn't start flying until I was in my 30s and even now I've got to take a zany like I can't handle the whole flying thing. If I could be labeled an aviatrix, I would definitely take flight lessons like I'm 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 considering it. Honestly, no. Uh, Yeah, so she's an aviatrix. She's a pilot. And women's clothing at that time, still not really made for function. It was made for fashion. Dresses and petticoats and corsets. Did they still wear corsets in 1911? Seems like something they would have made women do. But a pilot needs to be able to climb in and out of their plane and maneuver freely. Not wanting to give up her impeccable style for practicality, you know, flight suits were made to fit men and with men's style in mind. They weren't that stylish. Um, They weren't made for women or to be, you know, functional and fashionable. So Harriet had a special flight suit made. Deep purple trousers, jacket, and hood. Purple, bright, deep, glorious purple. She joined her flight school's exhibition team and she began doing shows and competitions, making pretty good money flying all over the world. She started writing about her adventures for Leslie's Illustrated Weekly, and as you can imagine, first-person stories written by America's first aviatrix were very popular. She also wrote several screenplays that were turned into short films, and she even starred in one of them. She was paid for appearances, and she signed brand promotional deals, including one with Vin Fizz Grape Soda because of her purple flight suit. She's like a little flying grape up there. Um, but she wasn't done making history just yet. I mean, that's a lot. That is a lot. I, I rattled it all off pretty fast there, but I mean, we have to keep the time in mind. It is 1911. Like she was really blazing some trails there. On April 16th, 1912, Harriet became the first woman to fly across the English Channel. She did this, and by this point, you know, she's only had her pilot's license for less than a year, but she, hey, if she can do it, I can do it too. She inspired other women, including 
Um, I thought this was really cool. So she befriended the sister of the family that owned the school where she did her flight training and then joined the exhibition team. It was, you know, brothers that owned this flight school. They had a sister that helped them run it but didn't know how to fly. And then she sees Harriet going up in this plane and she's like, well, shit, if she can do it, I can do it. So this woman, um, Mathilde Moisant, actually became the second woman in the United States to get her pilot's license because she was inspired by Harriet to do so. So English Channel, Harriet got it in her mind that she wanted to fly across it, and she did this in a type of plane that she was not familiar with, using nothing but a compass in fog and poor visibility. One of her colleagues male colleagues, of course, was so worried about this particular endeavor that he offered to take her place. He would wear that purple flying suit and no photographers or journalists would be close enough to really see his face when he had like his his goggles on. She could do all the press and all the interviews and then they'd switch places right before the flight, switch places again right after the flight, and nobody would ever know. And Harriet was like, no fucking way, dude. The point here isn't for people to think I did this thing. It's for me to actually do it, you tool. Uh, her colleagues' worries turned out to be unfounded as the flight went off without a hitch, but also because the media barely mentioned Harriet Quimby's accomplishment. Because an event had just occurred the day before that dominated headlines around the world for weeks, months, years, a little thing called the sinking of the Titanic. So Titanic was dominating the headlines, a flying purple grape, not not big news at the time. But Harriet would make headlines a few months later. On July 1st, 1912, 37-year-old Harriet Quimby attended the third annual Boston Aviation Meet in her brand new two-seat Blariot monoplane, if that means anything to you, because it means nothing to me. In front of a huge crowd, event organizer William Willard climbed into Harriet's passenger seat, and they were off. Harriet flew out to the Boston Light in Boston Harbor, then she returned to the airfield and circled above the cheering crowd. Then, for reasons that were never determined, the plane suddenly pitched forward, ejecting Harriet and her passenger from their seats because airplanes did not have seatbelts or harnesses. They both fell a thousand feet to their deaths in front of horrified onlookers. Jesus. Harriet's career. Could could you even imagine seeing that? Like airplanes were still fairly new at the time. So everybody was very intrigued and enamored by them. Could you imagine just watching two humans flip out of an airplane and splat on the ground right in front of you? It's just horrifying. I can't just, yeah, no, maybe... Maybe I won't go to flight school after all. Changed my mind. Harriet's career as a pilot was brief. Less than a year passed between the time she got her pilot's license and her tragic death. But she paved the way for every single aviatrix that came after her, including Miss Amelia Earhart. Who knew? I didn't know. Some of you probably knew that, but I didn't know that the first pilot in the country was from Good old Michigan, even though she didn't want anybody (laughs) to know that. I don't blame you, girl. Now, let's talk about another daredevil from Michigan, Miss Annie Edson Taylor, the goddess of water. I feel like we're doing like an avatar thing here. We got the air. Now we got the water. What do we need next? The earth and the fire? 
kind of, yeah, kind of. Okay. Whereas Harriet Quimby was born in Michigan and made her home elsewhere, Annie was born elsewhere but called Michigan home. She was from New York, one of 11 children born to Merrick and Lucretia Edson on October 4th, 1838. She came from a prosperous mining and farming family and enjoyed the financial comfort that allowed her to pursue her passions, which were always rooted in adventure. As a child, Annie preferred outdoor excursions to playing with dolls or learning the skills that would make her a good little wife. Tradition was not for her. And she did try, though. Uh, She got married at 18. She soon had her first and only child, a son, who died in infancy. And then her husband died quickly after her baby. And Annie just never attempted the family life again after that. She became a teacher, and she started moving all over the country for jobs in pursuit of the adventure she so desperately craved. And she found it. She survived a house fire when she lived in Chattanooga, an earthquake when she lived in South Carolina, a stagecoach robbery when she was in Texas, an armed gunman put a gun to her head and demanded money, and she did have it. She had like $800, it's a lot of money in the 1800s, hidden in her dress, and she just looked at him and said, blow away, I would as soon be without my brains as without money. (laughs) Eventually, Annie landed in Bay City, Michigan, where she opened a dance studio and charm school. And it did okay for a little while, but when business started to dry up and her bank account started to dwindle, Annie came up with a new idea, one that she claimed hit her like a bolt of lightning. She was going to be the first person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Why? Like, there's a whole world out there, right? There's a whole world out there, and you've mostly been teaching for most of it. There are so many things you could do, so many places you could go. Why going over Niagara Falls in a barrel was her first thought. I just would really like to know. It was the age of Harry Houdini and Barnum and Bailey. Death-defying stunts were all the rage. And they could lead to fame and fortune when done right. When done wrong, you died. But what's life? What's life without a little risk, right? Daredevils were doing all sorts of stunts at Niagara Falls, a group of three falls separating the U.S. and Canada at the New York, New York, Ontario border. The largest of the three falls is Horseshoe Falls, which sits right on top of that international border, is 167 feet high, and dumps over 230,000 cubic feet of water over its ledge every second. Every 230,000 cubic feet of water per second. That's insane. Insane. And this is where board colonials thought it would be a good idea to tightrope walk and swim and go boating, all for that thrill of a near-death experience. It wasn't always near-death, though. There was a lot of death-death at the falls, like just just death. Uh, Over 5,000 bodies have been found at the bottom of the falls since the 1850s, and it's estimated that a couple dozen people die going over the falls every year still to this day. The first recorded death from someone going over the falls was in 1853, when Joseph Avery and a couple of his buddies were working on a cargo ship on Goat Island. 
you know the place. And after a few too many drinks, they decided to take a little rowboat to the mainland. They got too close to the edge of Horseshoe Falls and their boat capsized. Uh, Avery's friends went right over the edge and were killed instantly, but Avery managed to grab onto like some roots that were growing from a rock. You know, typical boat tips over, about to go over a waterfall. You're going towards the edge and you see the roots on the tree and you grab them and you're hanging on for dear life. We've all been there, right? Like we we know that. We can see that. He held on for 18 hours. Rescuers tried in vain to get to him, but it was just way too treacherous to take another boat out or put another person in that water right there. Eventually, they tethered an unmanned boat to the Goat Island Bridge, and then they kind of like guided it downstream toward him. It actually reached him. He grabbed it. He found the strength to climb up inside of it, and then it immediately capsized and tossed him back into the water, and he went over the falls and died. That's, I can't, that's horrible. That is 18 hours, 18 hours. And then, yeah. Annie Edson Taylor's voyage was the first recorded intentional trip over the falls, but she had a hard time finding people to help her make it happen. No one was in a hurry to help a middle-aged widowed school teacher build a suicide vessel. And this is, when people thought she was 40, like people thought she was 40 and they're like, she's too old to be doing this. But she had been lying about her age for years. She was in her 60s, like her 60s. <laughs> she designed the barrel herself. She made a prototype from cardboard and string. Eventually, she got a company that made beer kegs to agree to build it for her. She chose each piece of white oak that went into the construction by hand, and the end result was a four-foot-tall tapered barrel, barely three feet wide at its widest point, uneven, and just resembling like a giant pickle barrel. She named it the Queen of the Mist. It was weighted with an anvil so that it would remain upright in the water, and it was lined with a thin mattress. Annie tested the barrel's durability by sending it over the falls two days before her planned stunt with her pet cat inside it. The cat survived with just a gash on its head. So for Annie, it was full steam ahead with her crazy pants plan. Why did she have to put the cat in it? Like if you were just testing its durability, why does it matter if something was inside it? If it's going to break apart, it's going to break apart. She hated that cat. But you know what? That cat fucking hated her. That cat never forgave her for that. I can guarantee you that. Because if I so much as look at Morrison and Hendrix wrong, raise my voice, God forbid, step on one of their tails or accidentally yeet them across the room when they step right in my path while I'm fucking walking. They hold grudges. They hold grudges for hours, sometimes days. I can't, I would have to go into witness protection if I put my fucking cat in a barrel and sent it over Niagara Falls and it survived. Like, I'm gone. I'm out of here because it's, it's, it's a wrap for me. <laughs> October 24th, 1901, was Annie's 63rd birthday. The perfect day to be born again or die, whichever. The barrel was put over the side of a rowboat near Goat Island, and Annie climbed inside wearing a black dress, a black feathered hat, holding her lucky heart-shaped pillow. 
The lid was nailed down, and then a bicycle pump was used to pump an hour's worth of air into the barrel before it was corked, even though the trip was expected to take less than a half hour from start to finish. Spectators watched from both the American and Canadian sides of the falls as the Queen of the Mist, with Annie inside it, bobbed and weaved toward the edge of Horseshoe Falls and then went over. The barrel disappeared under the water, then shot out like a rocket, bouncing off rocks and disappearing behind the veil of the falls. As it began to take on water, rescuers rushed to remove the lid, terrified by what they might find. Good God, shouted one of the rescuers, by megaphone, of course, so that the crowd could hear. She's alive. And she was alive. This 63-year-old school teacher was the first human on the planet that we know of to go over Niagara Falls in a homemade barrel, no less, and live to tell the tale. She was seasick, and just like her poor test dummy cat, had a gash on her head, but that was it. Though the stunt was a success, Annie told reporters, if it was with my dying breath, I would caution anyone against attempting the feat. I would sooner walk up the mouth of a cannon, knowing it was going to blow me to pieces, than make another trip over the fall. (laughs) So apparently it was not a good time. It would be another decade before anyone else attempted to go over the falls in a barrel. On July 25, 1911, circus performer Bobby Leach went over the falls in a metal barrel. He survived, but he spent six months in the hospital recovering from broken kneecaps and a fractured jaw. On July 11, 1920, so almost another decade later, a daredevil from the UK known as the Demon Barber of Bedminster, real name Charles Stevens, went over the falls in a heavy-duty barrel with a custom-fit harness inside. When rescuers reached the barrel at the bottom of the falls, the lid had been ripped off by the rapids and only Charles's right arm was still inside attached to the harness. Gross. As for Annie Edson Taylor, she found the fame and fortune she was after, but only briefly. She opened up a stand near the falls where she took photos with tourists and sold copies of her self-published autobiography about her achievement. She also did work as a clairvoyant and an electric and magnetic healer. But none of that was enough to make ends meet, and Annie spent her last years destitute. She died on April 29, 1921, at the age of 82. Penniless, fundraisers were held to pay for Annie's funeral and burial. She was buried in an area of Niagara Falls Oakwood Cemetery called Stunter's Rest alongside her fellow fallen daredevils. So there you have it. The country's first female aviator and the first person to survive a trip over Niagara Falls in a barrel. Both women from Michigan. Who knew? I didn't. I genuinely didn't know that. The next couple stories I have for you today are a bit darker, but before we dive into those, see what I did there? I want to tell you guys about a podcast that you might want to check out. If we learned anything during the last episode of Violent Ends, it's that we don't know anything. Our whole lives have been a lie. Always the Last to Know is here to help. Join hosts Ash and Katie every week as they discuss history and current events in a relatable and easy-to-understand way. Like to dive headfirst down rabbit holes? Who doesn't? Ash and Katie have been there, from unpacking the history of NATO clones to correcting inconsistencies in the public story of Marilyn Monroe to discussing current legislation sitting on Capitol Hill. 
If you feel like you're always the last to know about things and have no idea what's going on in the world, Always the Last to Know has your back. They discuss everything they wish they'd learned in school from historical figures to current events and all the things in between, even the things they're embarrassed to admit they don't know. Each episode is heavily researched from all perspectives. Ash and Katie stick to the facts, but that doesn't stop them from also putting their two cents in. Can relate. (laughs) They often interview guests with specialized knowledge of the topics they discuss from psychologists and mortuary practitioners to members of Congress. If you enjoy learning, laughing, and cursing with your friends, you're in the right place. Listen to Always the Last to Know on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. All right, now let's talk about the wildlife of one Miss Pauline Cushman. First of all, that wasn't her real name. Pauline's real name was Harriet Wood, and she was born in New Orleans on June 10th, 1833, to very important people. Her father, a Spanish merchant, was the son of one of Napoleon Bonaparte's soldiers, and her mother's family owned a successful winery in France. Hattie, as she was known, was one of eight children, but the only girl. Imagine having seven brothers. I mean, I kind of live like that. We've talked about this. I have a husband, two sons, two stepsons, one brother, three nephews. So like, yeah, I'm surrounded by nothing but boys in my life. But seven brothers as a little girl, that sounds awful. As such, she was coddled and treated like a little princess. When Hattie was very young, her family moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan to open a Native American trading post. There, Hattie went from proper Southern Belle to proper Michigan girl. She learned how to ride horses, shoot shotguns, and canoe. Not that, I mean, I'm a Michigan girl and I don't know how to do any of those things, but in the 1800s, I bet I would have killed it. Hattie grew into a beautiful young woman, and she decided that she wanted a more glamorous lifestyle than the Michigan wilderness could provide her. So at the age of 18, she headed to the city, New York City, to become an actress. It was there that she adopted the stage name Pauline Cushman. But Pauline's youth, beauty, and self-confidence did not a career make, and she struck out hard in the Big Apple. So she headed back home to New Orleans, where she was born, and she was hired by a theatrical troupe there, where she became known for her full figure and seductive charms. It was there that Pauline met her first husband, Charles Dickinson. Not the Charles Dickinson, just just Chuck, the musician. The two were married in 1853 when she was 20 and he was 22, so nothing gross there age-wise. Together, they moved to Cleveland, Ohio, where Chuck was from, and they had two children. Their son, Charlie, was born in 1858 when Pauline was 25, and their daughter, Ida, was born a year later. When the Civil War broke out, Chuck joined Ohio's 41st Infantry Division as an infantry musician. Less than a year later, on December 7, 1862, Chuck died of dysentery. He was 31. After Chuck's death, 29-year-old Pauline left her children, who would have been three and four, with her husband's family in Ohio and went back on the road as a traveling performer. In April of 1863, Pauline was performing in the play The Seven Sisters at a theater in Union-controlled Louisville, Kentucky, when she was approached by two Confederate soldiers— 
They offered her $300 to make a toast to the Confederacy and Confederate President Jefferson Davis during her show. $300 in 1863 would be over seven grand today. That's a lot of money for a war widow with two kids, but she understood the danger and, like, the nerve asking the widow of a Union soldier to do something like this. Poor Chuck was barely cold in his grave. He'd been dead, like, four months at this time. So Pauline went to Colonel Orlando Moore, a Union official, and she told him about what had happened, and he was like, yep do it. I have a plan. Go do it and then come to my office in the morning and let's talk about it. So during her next show, Pauline tipped her glass and said, here's to Jefferson and the Southern Confederacy. May the South always maintain her honor and her rights. And in true dramatic fashion, fights broke out in the crowd between Union and Confederate soldiers. People started screaming at her, throwing stuff at her. She was immediately fired, immediately fired. And she collected her $300 and she went to the office of Colonel Moore the next morning. The incident ingratiated Pauline with the Confederate soldiers, which was the whole point. Because Colonel Moore's plan was for Pauline to become a Union spy. Using her acting skills and her Louisiana accent, Pauline posed as a Confederate sympathizer to obtain information from the enemy. While posing as a Southern woman living in a boarding house in Union territory, she was able to stop the boarding house's mistress from poisoning the Union soldiers that were staying there. Assuming that they were on the same wicked team, the mistress confided in Pauline that she'd purchased some powdered poison, as one easily did in the 1800s, and she planned to put it in the food and drink that she was serving to the soldiers. Pauline warned the soldiers, got them out of the house safely, and got the mistress of the manor arrested for war crimes. Whether playing her best Southern belle and using her seductive charm, or dressed as a man posing as a Confederate soldier, Pauline schmoozed rebel military commanders to get access to classified documents and would hide battle plans in her shoes, elicit confessions from Confederate spies and get them arrested, and nobody suspected a thing. But while she was out saving the world, she couldn't save her own children. Her son Charlie died in 1864 at the age of six from diphtheria, and her daughter Ida died four years later from typhoid fever at the age of nine. Both children were buried near their father at Woodland Cemetery in Cleveland. In the summer of 1863, 30-year-old Pauline embarked on her most ambitious and dangerous spy mission of all. She was sent to Nashville, Tennessee to gain access to Confederate camps under the guise of looking for her missing brother. Once there, she was supposed to gather information on the size of Confederate forces, how well stocked on supplies they were, and how easy to attack their camps were. It was here that she was captured by Confederate soldiers who ripped off her spy mask Scooby-Doo style and found her with the blueprints for their planned fortification hiding in her boot. And I would have gotten away with it, too, if it weren't for you meddling racists. (laughs) Before her car... Before court-martial, she managed to escape, but was quickly recaptured. She was taken to Shelbyville, Tennessee, where Confederate General Braxton Bragg, you know the guy, tried her for espionage. To absolutely no one's surprise, she was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. 
But the conditions she was being kept in during her trial were so poor that by the time her verdict was handed down, Pauline was sick with typhoid fever. Too sick to be hanged, apparently? I don't know. Maybe they were concerned with the optics of hanging a frail, sickly woman. Um, But they were treating her illness to get her better so that they could publicly hang her. So that, that happened. It's believed that Pauline put her acting skills to use again and really played up her illness. She was stalling, and she stalled long enough that the cavalry was able to rush in and rescue her, literally. The Union Army overtook the Confederate camp and freed Pauline from her grim fate. President Lincoln even made her an honorary major for her efforts. Her cover blown, Pauline's days as a Union spy were over, so she returned to what she knew, performing. She joined the P.T. Barnum tour circuit, recounting embellished tales of her days as a spy. In the early 1870s, Pauline moved out west to San Francisco, where she met her second husband, August Fitchner. The two were married in December of 1872, when Pauline was 39. She was a widow again, less than a year later. Now twice widowed, with two dead children, her youthful beauty gone, Pauline's zest for life kind of faded. She spent the next several years working at logging camps and boarding houses as a seamstress, a cook, a maid, you know, like boring 1800s women shit, the, the, the typical, the huge. In 1879, at the age of 46, Pauline married her third husband, Jeremiah Frere, who went by Jer. Jer Frere. Together, the couple adopted a baby girl in 1881 that they named Emma Pauline. The new family settled in Arizona where they ran a hotel and stagecoach stop. Jer even served as a sheriff for a number of years. Sheriff Jer Frere. Share Jer Frere. I'll stop. I'm sorry. In 1888, six-year-old Emma died following a seizure. The grief was too much for Pauline, and she and Jer Frere went their separate ways, though they never officially divorced. Pauline moved back to San Francisco, where she spent her last few years destitute, homeless, barely scraping by with menial jobs. She became addicted to pain medication that she had been prescribed for her arthritis. And then on December 2nd, 1893, at the age of 60, Pauline overdosed on morphine and died in her sleep. Whether that overdose was intentional or not depends on who you ask. Pauline was buried at the National Cemetery in San Francisco with full military honors, as she should have been. All right, friends, I've saved the worst one for last. Let's talk about the murder of Viola Liuzzo. And this one I actually have had on my list for a really long time, and I put it on my list of stories to do this year. Uh, So when I saw her name in that book that I used as a reference, The Wild Women of Michigan, I was like, oh, yes, let's, let's do this. Let's, let's combine all of this. Okay. Viola Gregg was born on April 11th, 1925, the eldest daughter of coal miner Heber Gregg and school teacher Eva Wilson. Viola's only sibling, her sister Rosemary, joined the family five years later. The Greggs lived in a small town in rural Pennsylvania until Heber lost his hand in a mining explosion when the girls were young. The family then became dependent solely on Eva's income, and so they had to move from place to place as Eva took whatever work she could find as a teacher during the Great Depression. They went from Pennsylvania to Georgia to Tennessee, 
where they lived in one-room shacks with no running water. The schools in these extremely poor neighborhoods didn't have proper resources to teach and support the children. And with the way that the Greggs were constantly moving, never starting and finishing school year in the same place, teachers just didn't really pay the Gregg girls a whole lot of attention. What was the point? They'd be moving on soon anyway. Um, But that's not to say that the girls weren't learning. Living in the deeply segregated South had a major impact on young Viola and would go on to inspire the path that she took later in life. In 1941, when Viola was 16, her family moved to Ypsilanti, Michigan, home of the giant penis statue, and Eastern Michigan University, but mostly the giant penis statue. And it's Ypsilanti, not Ypsilanti, you savages. Her father took a job assembling... (laughs) Her dad... Okay. I don't know why this is so funny to me, but this is so funny to me. Her father got a job assembling war bombs at Ford Motor Company. And I am just picturing a man with one hand building bombs. (laughs) It's so funny to me. Hey, what happened to your hand, man? I mean, like, I I wouldn't want to touch the bombs he was building, right, if I'm his coworker. (laughs) I don't know. Anyway, by this point, Miss Viola, who was gorgeous, Gorgeous, by the way. Full-on blonde bombshell. Uh, Gorgeous. She was a little firecracker. The same year that her family moved to Ipsy, she dropped out of high school, ran away, and got married to a much older man. That was a mistake, and she quickly returned home. By quickly, I mean literally, literally the next day. Her marriage lasted one day. Two years later, when Viola was 18, the family moved to Detroit. If growing up in the South ignited Viola's spark to become a civil rights activist, living in heavily segregated Detroit turned that spark into a big old bonfire. Viola witnessed firsthand the riots and violence brought on by racial tensions and injustice. That same year that her family moved to Detroit when she was 18, Viola married her second husband, the manager of the restaurant that she worked at. Their six-year marriage produced two daughters, uh, and then they divorced in 1949. In 1950, when she was 25, the twice-divorced mother of two met and fell in love with Anthony James Liuzzo, who went by Jimmy. Uh, Jimmy was a business agent for the International Brotherhood of Teamsters and was 12 years Viola's senior. I have seen pictures of Jimmy, and honey, he is a teamster with a capital T. Like, you didn't even need him to tell you. He just looks at you and you know he's a teamster. He absolutely knows what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. No question about it. So they got married. They had three kids together, two boys and a girl. Uh, They lived in a racially integrated middle-class neighborhood in Detroit where Viola doted on her five children. She took them camping and on nature walks, and she taught them the meaning of civil disobedience. She read them books on philosophy and history. Viola spent over a decade raising her babies, and then in the early 1960s, when she was in her mid-30s, she decided that she wanted to further her education formally. Remember, she dropped out of high school when she was 16, so she attended night classes at the Carnegie Institute in Detroit, and then she enrolled in the pre-nursing program at Wayne State University in 1962. In the midst of raising five children and working toward her nursing degree, Viola was a staunch supporter of civil rights. In 1964, she joined the NAACP, 
There, she helped organize protests and attended civil rights conferences. On March 7, 1965, 39-year-old Viola was safe in her home in Detroit with her family, watching on TV as the horror that became known as Bloody Sunday unfolded in Selma, Alabama. Watching unarmed black citizens being brutalized by police for peacefully protesting stirred something inside Viola, and she knew she had to do something. So when she heard about a four-day, 54-mile march from Selma to Montgomery in support of voting rights, she didn't hesitate. She packed a bag, made arrangements for her children to stay with family and friends, and called her husband, who was away on business. She told him, this is everybody's fight, when he tried to dissuade her from going. She kissed her five children who ranged in age from 17 to 6 years old goodbye and she promised to call them every night, which she did. And then she headed south, intent on being a part of history. And she was, just not in the way she intended. Viola was working with the Southern Christian Leadership Conference who tasked her with transporting volunteers and marchers to and from airports, bus terminals, and train stations in her 1963 Oldsmobile. The march began on March 21st, 1965, with over 3,000 participants and the entire world watching. Viola helped in a number of ways over the next several days. Some days she marched, other days she shuttled marchers between locations or helped out at the first aid tent. And then on the final day, March 25th, which was a Thursday, Viola stood at the Alabama State Capitol with 25,000 other protesters in defiance of the Confederate flag that flew above the building and watched Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. give a moving, I want to call it a victory speech, but I guess it wasn't, an inspirational speech. The march might have been over, but Viola's work was not. She and another activist, a black teenager by the name of Leroy Moten, were transporting marchers from Montgomery back to Selma when a car attempted to run them off the road. Shaken but not stirred, Viola delivered her passengers safely to their destination in Selma, and then she headed back to Montgomery for another load of marchers. When she and Leroy, who was 19, stopped for gas, locals hurled racial slurs at them. A pretty white lady in the company of a young black man? Why, I never... A short time later, as the two sat at a stoplight on the desolate highway that ran between Montgomery and Selma, US 80, a car with four white men inside, and by white, I mean white hoods white, pulled up beside them. The sight of a pretty white woman with a black man enraged them, and they began to chase after her. Viola tried to outrun them, singing We Shall Overcome as she drove to calm her nerves, but the men caught up with her and opened fire. Viola was shot twice in the head and killed instantly. Her Oldsmobile veered into a ditch, then crashed into a fence. Her 19-year-old passenger, who was covered with blood and brain matter, was not injured, but he played dead as the Klansmen approached the car to admire their work. As soon as they left, Leroy ran for help and was able to flag down a passing truck. But it was too late for Viola Liuzzo. 39-year-old mother of five, the only known white woman to die in the civil rights movement. Mourners turned out in droves to attend Viola's funeral in Detroit on March 30, 1965, including Martin Luther King Jr. and Jimmy Hoffa. See? See, I told you her husband knew what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, and I wrote that part before I even read this part. So, just, yes. Yes. 
And also, just a weird aside, like you think about that, how strange that sounds, Jimmy Hoffa and Martin Luther King Jr. sitting together at a funeral. That reminds me of another super off-topic story real quick. Um, So, you know, we did the Fruit War episode last year about the Italian mafia and Al Capone in Lansing. Um, And then as we know, and has been done in another episode, um, Malcolm X and his family lived in Lansing. His father was murdered in Lansing. Well, a customer came into Dead Time Stories not very long ago and told me uh, a story. She was related to the the Fruit War participants. And she said that um, Al Capone had bought, I can't remember if it's her grandpa or maybe like a great uncle, but Al Capone had bought a bike for either her grandfather or her great uncle. And when he was a little boy, that bike got stolen by Malcolm X. So a, a child... Malcolm X stole a bike that Al Capone bought for somebody. So that's that's Michigan history in a nutshell, bringing Martin Luther King and Jimmy Hoffa together and Al Capone and Malcolm X all just, all just hanging out in, in the mitten here. <laughs> okay, back to our story. Sorry. So the four Klansmen responsible for murdering Viola were apprehended less than 24 hours after her murder, with President Lyndon B. Johnson condemning the act on national television. He said, Mrs. Layuzo went to Alabama to serve the struggle for justice. She was murdered by the enemies of justice, who for decades have used the rope and the gun and the tar and the feathers to terrorize their neighbors. He vowed to launch an investigation into the Klan and announced that he planned to send an anti-KKK bill to Congress. Which, okay, I'm sorry, but that is bullshit. How many, like he said, decades, for decades, the KKK has been terrorizing and brutalizing people. How many black people, black men, black women, black children, how many were murdered, abused, assaulted, terrorized, brutalized? And nothing was done. But the second it's a pretty white woman that gets murdered by the KKK, got to do something now. That's it's just fucked up. It's so fucked up. For all of the support the Laozos received, who underneath the politics and the attention of it all, this was just a family grieving a tremendous loss. There was a lot of hate as well. Their home was broken into. A burning cross was left on their lawn. Viola's youngest daughter, Sally, who was six years old, recounted one just fucking horrible, horrible incident to NPR. If I didn't hate people enough, I hate them more now. She said it was her first day returning to school after her mother's death, and she was wearing her saddle shoes. Her older sister, Penny, had polished them for her, but it was pouring rain that day, and as she walked, the polish started to come off the shoes. There were people, grown adults, lining the streets, throwing rocks at a six-year-old baby who was walking to school, screaming horrible things at her, calling her the N-word lover's baby. And she, being six, didn't understand any of this. So she thought they were mad at her because of her messy shoes. Her father pulled her out of school that very day. He transferred her to a school with better security, and he drove her to and from school every single day himself for several years. He also hired security detail to watch the family home around the clock for the next two years. Now, we all know that racists are bottom-of-the-barrel, brain-dead idiots, but how stupid do you have to be? 
as Bubba Jim Bob who makes moonshine in his toilet to terrorize the family of a teamster leader, <laughs> a friend of Jimmy Hoffa's. I want I wonder how many of those assholes just mysteriously disappeared or died in freak accidents. Good riddance. Good riddance. Within about 24 hours of Viola's death, a weird thing started happening. Uh, Newspapers started coming out with stories that she wasn't this do-gooder activist or this loving wife and mother being portrayed in early reports. They claimed she was actually a drug addict who traveled from Detroit to Selma to have sex with black men, which not only isn't true, but it doesn't even make any sense. If her goal was just to have sex with black men, why would she leave Detroit where maybe it wasn't safe for white women and black men to be in a relationship or seen together in any sort of uh, capacity other than professional? Why would she leave Detroit to go to Alabama where it was like literally against the law? So to be like, that makes no sense. If that was her goal, why would she leave Detroit to Alabama to do that? That's stupid. Fucking stupid. The Liuzzo family couldn't figure out where all these completely bullshit rumors were coming from, but they would soon find out, and the answer was shocking. So the four men arrested for Viola's murder were 21-year-old Kali Wilkins, 41-year-old William Eaton, 42-year-old Eugene Thomas, and 34-year-old Gary Rowe, who was an FBI informant. To detract from the fact that an FBI informant was involved in the murder, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover began a smear campaign against Viola so that people would think her life wasn't worth anything. But yeah, the literal director of the FBI was the one spreading these completely untrue rumors about Viola to the media. But nobody knew that until well over a decade later when Viola's children obtained FBI case documents through a Freedom of Information Act request. What in the actual fuck? So back to the four fucksticks that killed Viola. The three men who were not FBI informants were all indicted on charges of first-degree murder while the informant testified against them. He said that 21-year-old Collie Wilkins fired two shots into Viola's car on Eugene Thomas's orders. The men faced federal charges first, not for the murder, but for violating Viola's civil rights through intimidation. They were found guilty by an all-male, all-white federal grand jury and sentenced to 10 years in prison each for the civil rights violations. Then they faced state murder charges, that state being Alabama. So we all know how this is going to go. The first trial ended in a mistrial, and the second trial ended in acquittals across the board. Despite eyewitness accounts, including the testimony of the FBI informant who was in the car with them, and ballistics reports matching the bullets to a gun that one of the men owned. President Johnson used Viola Liuzzo's murder to encourage Congress to pass the Voting Rights Act, which they did less than six months after her death, which again is such bullshit. How many people had been working, how many black people and activists had been working for years and years and years to get this Voting Rights Act passed and all it took was the death of one pretty white lady. Bullshit. 
Viola never intended to be a murder. She was just a human with a good heart who felt compelled to speak up and take action against injustices. And she was murdered for it by a bunch of slack-jawed yokels who barely served any time in prison. In 1989, Viola's family attended the dedication of the Civil Rights Memorial in Montgomery, Alabama. The memorial is a granite fountain featuring a partial quote by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. And the names of 41 people who died in the pursuit of civil rights are also listed on the fountain, including Viola's. Her daughter Sally recalled Dr. King's son, Martin Luther King III, pulling her aside at the dedication and telling her, I wanted you to know something. 30 years ago, my dad couldn't be in this ballroom. And today, you and I are here together. And it's because of your mother. Oh, my gosh. In 2013, Viola Liuzzo was awarded the Ford Freedom Humanitarian Award, an honor only awarded to one other person before her, Nelson Mandela. And in 2015, Wayne State University posthumously awarded Viola an honorary Doctor of Laws degree, so she is now officially known as Dr. Dr. Viola Liuzzo. So there you have it on this Women's History Month. Michigan is home to the first female aviator in U.S. history, an aviatrix, if you will, the first person to ever go over Niagara Falls in a barrel, a sexy actress turned Civil War spy, and the only white woman to die that we know of because of her efforts in the civil rights movement. That's pretty awesome. Almost makes up for the fact that we have to claim Ted Nugent as one of our own. That's all I've got for you today, friends. Like I said at the top of this episode, um, stories on all of these women can be found in the book, The Wild Women of Michigan, which I do carry at Dead Time Stories if you want to come in and pick up a copy. Uh, but you can find a full list of the resources for today's episode on the page for this episode on the Violent Ends website. Just a couple things before we go. Um, this is episode 99. 99 episodes of the show. Um, which means that the next episode is episode 100. And I wanted to do something fun to celebrate. So there's going to be a live show, a Violent Ends live show on April 2nd at 3 o'clock at the Robin Theater in Lansing. It's going to be super fun. We're still putting details together. But I've got some surprises and some special guests come in. And we'll have some So Dead merch and some Violent Ends merch and the opportunity to order t-shirts and hoodies with either or both um, So Dead and Violent Ends logos on them. This will kind of be the last run of So Dead merch that we do as we complete that transition into the new name. So yeah, come if you can. Um, at the time of this recording, there are still some tickets available, like a handful of tickets left. So uh, if you go to the Violent Ends Facebook page or Facebook group, you'll see the link for the tickets. Or if you just Google the Robin Theater, spelled fancy, like T-H-E-A-T-R-E, uh, the Robin Theater in Lansing. It'll pull up their website. It'll have their shows. Uh, and the Violent Ends Live show is April 2nd. So come if you can. I want to see you guys there. Because this is the first, I don't know how many of you came to the last live show that was at the Robin, but that was in February of 2020, celebrating the show's one-year anniversary. Uh, pretty sure it became a super spreader. <laughs> right? Like we didn't know COVID was here at the time, but now we do know that COVID was definitely here in February of 2020. And 
after the show, half of the crowd, including Danny, got like violently ill and everyone was saying it was like, this is the sickest I've ever been and it's not influenza and it's not, you know, anything that I've ever experienced before. Well, it was probably fucking COVID. So um going to do our best not to be a super spreader this time around. And um, <laughs> that's really selling the event, isn't it? I just need to stop talking. One more thing I do need to tell you guys, and this is kind of just a last minute decision as this is your, this is what, three, four episodes this year so far. And all of them except for the very first one have been late. I'm going to switch release day for Violent Ends to Wednesday. And I'm doing that because Monday and Tuesdays are my days off from the bookshop. And when this started, you know, I had weekends off. We recorded on the weekends. Dave, the patron saint of doing things for other people, (laughs) um, would edit them for us. And it was easy enough to, you know, spend Monday evening getting it ready and putting it out Tuesday. But at this point... I'm kind of running fly by the seat of my pants. I'm still working on the show on Monday and Tuesday. I'm recording this at noon on Tuesday, and the episode should have come out this morning. So I I need my Monday and my Tuesday to get the episodes ready. And so Wednesday is going to be the new release date, starting with the very next episode. I hope that's okay with you guys. I'm so sorry. Um, That's it, though. I will see you in a couple weeks with episode 100. Jesus. And hopefully see you in person at the show on April 2nd. Until then, keep shining, you magnificent what the fucks.